جمال الوجود بذكر الاله وتصفو الحياه بنور هدى السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته Welcome back to the podcast. Now we are continuing. This is part two of the subject, which is called the ten most common questions asked by non-Muslims. And actually, in fact, it's Muslims as well. Practicing Muslims, we we have these questions as well. So this is part two. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that first. And we're continuing our countdown. So we're at number five. And the question is, what's the difference between Shia and Sunni Muslims? The division between Sunni and Shia Muslims is more political than religious, but it still fuels violent conflicts across the Middle East to this day. It all started with the death of the Prophet ﷺ in the year 632 in the Common Era, and a split over who should succeed him as the political and spiritual leader of the fast-growing Muslim people. One group believed that the leadership should stay in Muhammad ﷺ's family, namely his cousin, and son-in-law Ali. The other group backed Abu Bakr, a close friend of the Prophet and father of one of his wives. Muhammad's father-in-law Abu Bakr won, and the disgruntled supporters of Ali became known as the Shia, short for Shia Ali, which is the followers of Ali. Those who supported Abu Bakr eventually became known as the Sunni and or the followers of Sunnah, that's short for the followers of Sunnah, the prophetic tradition. Ali did get a chance to rule briefly as the fourth leader of, of the Muslim community, but feud, but the feud between the sects was rekindled when one of Ali's sons, Hussein, was killed by the Sunni leaders in Iraq, and that was in the year 680 in the Common Era. The religious differences between Sunni and Shia Muslims are less about the doctrine than the source of that doctrine. So what that means is, all Muslims, we're all Muslims, alhamdulillah, all Muslims believe in the five pillars and the six articles of faith. But Sunnis view the Quran and the Sunnah, the prophetic tradition, as the divinitive and final sources of enlightenment. Whilst the Shias, on the other hand, believe that Allah's revelation continued after Muhammad wasallam through a line of imams, or holy leaders, and that it continues today in the form of Shia leaders, uh, that that which are in, uh, very common in uh, Iraq these days, uh, and Iran, and, and these countries in the Middle East. These are the countries that that uh, the, the Shia belief is, is more common. Today, 80% of the world's Muslims are Sunni, and in many places, both sects live together in harmony. Yet much of the conflict in the Middle East is still fueled by power struggles between Sunni and Shia-led forces. In the Middle East and North Africa, 40% of Sunnis, they don't recognize Shias as fellow Muslims. This is very, very dangerous practice where we're starting now um, in this day and age where we're dividing ourselves into smaller and smaller sects. This becomes very dangerous. It comes into not just from the Middle East, but in our localities as well where we, we don't say salam to brothers because they're from a different following or we, we don't we definitely don't go to the masajid and we avoid them and, and we you know we don't befriend them. This is a very dangerous uh, aspect of our religion. Mo- most observers 
Um, I agree that both Sunni and Shiite governments fuel sectarianism um, among the people just to win support for pursuing political and military goals. So this is taking religion right out of where um, Muhammad وسلم, and the, the, the Sunnah of the religion started out. Now it's, it's, it's used for political gain uh, and military goals and finance goals and things like that. And it's just completely went way beyond what the religion should be. Number six, do Muslim women have to keep themselves covered? Modesty and chastity are important virtues for both Muslim men and women, and the Quran instructs both sexes to cast down their glances and guard their chastity. But with regard to female modesty, the Quran continues, women should not display their beauty except what is apparent, and they should place their hijab over their bosoms. A hijab is a veil-like covering. Many Muslim scholars interpret the command not to display beauty, except what is apparent, as to mean covering only the hair, but not the face and the hands. Women who follow their tradition typically wear variations on the hijab. Others interpret the command to place the veil over their bosoms to mean that women should cover much more than just their hair. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, his wives were said to have worn head-to-toe coverings. This is to believe. This is believed to be the origin of the niqab, a full body covering that reveals only the eyes. Another Quranic verse commands that people who speak to the Prophet ﷺ's wives must do so behind a screen to ensure greater purity for the hearts and for theirs. Some interpret this to mean that even seeing a woman's eyes is an invitation for impure thoughts. That explains the barqa used by some women, which not only covers the entire body but also veils the eyes with a screen. Others point out that if a woman's face were meant to be visible, the Quran would not instruct men to cast down their, their glances. It's important to note that Muslim women are only expected to cover their heads or faces in public, but not at home or in the pl- in the presence of family members, including men. Number seven, does Sharia require punishments like stoning? Western critics of Islam decry the seemingly medieval punishment imposed by Islamic law, like stoning for adultery and hand-cutting for robbery. But while these punishments are indeed mentioned in the Quran and other Islamic holy texts, they are not the essence of Sharia or the Islamic law. First, it's important to know that the word Sharia does not actually mean Islamic law. Sharia is translated from the Arabic as the clear, well-trodden path to water and includes all teachings from the Quran and the life of the Prophet to help guide Muslims down the right path towards Allah. The legal interpretation of this teaching is called fiqh and largely follow the Prophet's mission to prize us away from punishment and to the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Many Sharia teachings are designed to make life easy for individuals, the family and broader society. Those include prohibitions against adultery, and premarital sex to strengthen the family and the admonition against drinking alcohol or eating foods 
believed to be unclear to preserve health. Sharia teachings also include the ethical way to conduct business transactions to prevent fraud and promote justice. The punishments for ignoring or flouting these teachings, some of which are laid out explicitly in the Quran and the Sunnah, are meant to deter hurtful behaviour that leads individuals and societies away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Most punishments are mild and mainly focus on the right and wrong way to worship. But a small minority, 2% of the Islamic law of the books, gets all the attention. According to the Sunnah, the Prophet said that drunkenness should be punished by 40 lashes. Having sex before marriage, according to Quran, merits a hundred lashings. Thieves are to have their hands cut off, and adultery is punishable by death by stoning. It sounds cruel and unusual, but historians point out that stoning, whipping, lashing, and other physical punishments were commonplace before the Western idea of prisons took hold. Also, Islamic scholars and judges built layers and layers of ambiguities in the law to reserve such harsh punishment for only the most extreme cases. For example, for someone to be stoned for adultery, Sharia courts require four witnesses to the actual sexual act. If someone makes a false accusation of adultery, they could receive 80 lashings, a major deterrent to make such a claim. Stoning and whipping still occurs in some fundamentalist corners of Islam. For instance, places such as Indonesia, Saudi Arabia and Sudan. But these practices are not embraced by mainstream Islam. However, Sharia does form the basis of the law for many, many Muslim majority countries. Number 8. Does Islam condone terrorism? Like all major religions, Islam prohibits the taking of innocent lives and only allows warfare in the face of direct attack. And even then, according to the Quran, the moment an aggressor yields or turns away, all the fighting should cease and be replaced with forgiveness and mercy. But why then do groups like Al-Qaeda and IS who claim to be believing Muslims encourage their followers to commit horrendous acts of violence against innocent civilians. In those cases, religion is used as an excuse for the violent pursuit of largely political goals. Religious scriptures have been cherry-picked by fundamentalists of all faiths to justify violence against non-believers, and the Quran is no different. If you pull certain verses of the Quran out of their historical context, they will be twisted to sound like instructions to kill non-Muslims, where you find them, as one verse puts it. In the early years of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad and his followers were persecuted and attacked in Mecca, forcing them to flee to Medina. Although his supporters wanted him to fight back, the Prophet Muhammad refused until Allah gave him permission. And when the permission to kill the believers finally came, it was in response to a specific attack under specific historical circumstances. Other Quranic verses about warfare make it clear that violence is allowed only in cases of self-defense. 
or when defending the lives of other believers, such as Jews and Christians. And the moment the enemy turns away, fighting should stop. It is often important that people who join groups such as ISIS believe that if they die during battle or as a suicide bomber, they will go straight to heaven as a martyr. But when one digs deeper, there's generally an economic identity or other motivation for them joining as well, equating a just war to fight oppression and injustice with terrorism is a mistake made both by terrorism and critics of Islam. Number nine, are most Muslims Arabs? The quick answer is nope. According to the Pew Research Center, that's Pew, P-E-W, only 20% of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims live in the Middle East and North Africa, the regions most closely associated with Arab people. The place with the most Muslims, interestingly, is Asia Pacific region, which is home to nearly two-thirds, 62% of all Muslims. More Muslims live in Indonesia, about 209 million, than any other single country, followed by India, uh, 176 million, and then Pakistan, 167 million. Egypt has 76 million Muslims, putting it sixth on the list of most populated Muslim countries, but it's number one amongst the Arab-majority countries. The reason many Westerners associate Islam with Arab-majority countries is that the density of believers is highest in that region. For example, in the Middle East and North Africa, 93% of all 341 million inhabitants identify as Muslims. And compare that to just 24% of Asia-Pacific regions. Even though many more Muslims live outside of Arab countries, the practice uh, outside Arab countries and practice non-Arabic interpretations of Islam, they get far less attention from the Western media than the Muslims from the Middle East. And number 10. What has Islam contributed to civilization? Islamic philosophers, scientists, poets and engineers have made tremendous contributions to both Islamic and Western civilization. When predominantly Christian Europe was marred into the Dark Ages or Medieval period, Islamic culture experienced its Golden Age, producing and preserving knowledge that would shape the future of astronomy, medicine, education, chemistry and literature. The world's first university and the oldest library in operation was founded by two wealthy Muslim women in Morocco in the year 859. The central importance of knowledge and education in early Islam led to the creation of several prominent universities in Spain between the 8th and the 15th centuries. Algebra, trigonometry and chemistry were invented by Muslim scholars in the Middle Ages Major advances in astronomy were discovered at large Muslim-built observatories in Baghdad as far back as the 9th century. Some of the most influential and beloved poetry in the world has come from Persia, or what's now modern-day Iran. Ferdowsi, a 10th century Persian poet, wrote the longest epic poem in history at 60,000 verses, and Rumi, a 13th century imam 
and mystic who wrote love poems to Allah is still one of the best-selling poets in the United States to this day. And finally, coffee was first drank in Yemen in the 1400th by an Islamic sect called the Sufis as an aid to stay awake for prayer. From there, coffee houses sprang up in Egypt and other parts of the Middle East, and it leads from there all the way to what we know now as Starbucks, the Costa, and their origins were way, way, way back in Yemen in the 1400s. So that brings us to the end of our count um, of the 10 most common questions um, asked to Muslims. And also, it was really interesting for me to learn about this, and I hope for you guys as well, it was really interesting just to know the connections between Islam and, and the modern day that we're living in. So next time you're in a Costa, um, <laughs> you can have some kind of pride in it that its roots are back in, in Islamic history and the coffee. So I hope this has been interesting to you guys and go back and listen to a couple of points and impress your friends and, and be ready when uh, someone asks about Islam or what has Islam contributed to civilization or any other uh, questions that they might have. Or maybe you can just bring it up in conversation. <laughs> All right, guys. I'll catch you on the next um, podcast. Assalamu alaikum.